The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. And my friends and I, we refuse to be processed, sorted, filed, and coded by the computer. That's a crime? Well, technically no, but Data Universal, they couldn't quite figure out what to do with us. They consider us incomplete files, so they put us in here, the waiting room. What right do they have to keep you here? No, it was our choice. We refused to use that credit, so we have no rights as citizens. What are you in for? Not charging enough, I guess. Ah, oh, yeah. Crank up those balances. Come on, don't worry. Charge it now. Pay later. <sighs> They'll indoctrinate you. You'll be out by the end of the week. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be The fake news media has been flooding the airwaves and print publications with outrageous accusations of extremism and right-wing violence on the horizon. The inescapable irony of that narrative is that this is precisely why they are the fake news. Extremism and right-wing violence is BS because the very terms and phrases are BS. Add to that a fake cause with a fake narrative called sustainable development and you've got all the makings for an unsustainable tyranny, which is the real development that should concern us, and perhaps even delight us. As it may, write after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of our social media links and archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. The first time I ever heard the term sustainable development, I knew instinctively that there was some kind of scam going on by the people who would use such a term. The term is oxymoronic. It's, it's redundant. It's plain stupid. What other kind of development is there? Sustainable means self-perpetuating, and development is based on that principle. If some kind of development is not sustainable, it wouldn't exist. That is, unless government gets its hands on it. In a state-controlled and regulated market, all developments are unsustainable and only exist because of the state-sanctioned plunder of those who are sustainable and self-sufficient. But even such plunder usually runs its course, and as the tyranny that makes it possible begins to crumble under its own weight, the tyranny itself becomes unsustainable. We are approaching that tipping point today, and it comes with great risks and dangers. And while seeing the end of a current tyranny may be a delightful thing, we have to ensure that we're not just trading one tyranny for another. You know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Boss being the operative word here. But in the hands of the state and state officials, the word sustainable development is just another term for a state monopoly, inefficient, unsustainable without tax dollars, and a waste and a blight to the environment as are all state-run or state-financed enterprises. There are no exceptions. And to illustrate this reality, on this side of our upcoming bumper, 
the rebel media's Katie Davis Court unveils the nightmare about to unfold on the American and Canadian West Coast, while on the return side of the bumper, Australia's Maria Z, in conversation with Mike Adams, reveals the sinister intentions behind such developments. Katie Davis Court reporting for Rebel News here today in Blaine, Washington at the Semiama Resort where international West Coast politicians and oligarchs are gathering for the Cascadia Innovation Corridor Conference to discuss how the West Coast, all the way from British Columbia down to California, will be able to achieve net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050, a goal set forth by the World Economic Forum. Bill Gates, Governor Jay Inslee, Governor Gavin Newsom, Governor Kate Brown, BC Premier John Horgan, and other leaders in the transportation and tech industry will be discussing how to build the world's first sustainable mega region. Now, this is essentially a pact between West West Coast states in Canada to implement the same climate policies that would get the region on track to reduce emissions. According to Cascadia Vision 2050, the proposal states that to combat traffic congestion, which they say generate immense greenhouse gas emissions and is a leading threat to climate, they will create a high-speed light rail running from British Columbia down to Oregon. Now, the proposal also states that affordable housing is one of the leading causes of climate change because middle and low income people can't afford to live in big cities and have to commute in to work, thus polluting the environment. In order to tackle this, the proposal says that they will be developing underdeveloped land and will build new hub cities that the light rail can be connected to. If all goes to plan, the Cascadia Corridor will be the global climate model for the world. Now, they are not trying to hide their intentions in reaching net zero carbon emissions. Just ask the president and CEO of Surrey Board and Trade, Anita Huberman. What we're talking about today as we celebrate the unity at the Peace Arch is a hope for an economic future where we are creating an opportunity zone in the Cascadia economic region. In Surrey, British Columbia, we're a border city. Uh, half of our population speaks a mother tongue other than English. A third of our population is under the age of 19. 30% of our population is of South Asian origin. We have the highest number of newcomers and refugees that come into our city. We are talking about an opportunity to work across the border for common economic opportunities to make sure that every single person matters in this economy. Christine Gregoire, former Washington governor and current CEO of Challenge Seattle, an alliance of CEOs from 17 of the region's largest private businesses, wants them to be the global model too. In recent days, as wildfires spread in our region, we have been reminded that Mother Nature is warning us about the greatest challenges that are facing us and our region, the climate crisis. We just concluded our sixth annual Cascadia Conference, and we did so, did so at Semiyama. We have committed ourselves to becoming the first sustainable mega region in the world. Together, we can mitigate the wildfires. We can preclude those floods and the dramatic heat that have threatened the lives of so many of our residents and businesses. 
The conference drew slight pushback and a group of protesters gathered outside the resort. They believe that the green agenda is a scam being used to control the population in order to pave the way for the Great Reset in one world order. If they start messing with our food supply and get rid of beef and meat and cattle and all of that to limit nitrogen emissions, are you going to be eating the bugs? No, I'm not going to eat, eat any. I'm not eating any bugs. Do you think the elite will still be eating meat? Probably. Probably. Yeah. And uh, you can see in the past that, uh, you know, all the rules really don't apply to them. You know, and it's, you've seen it time and time again, you know, people talking about climate change and buying and the ocean's going to rise. And, you know, Florida should be underwater by now, depending on which decades ago person you listen to. Yeah, they bought beachfront property because they know they don't believe it themselves. Why did you decide to come out and protest this event? I think it's the first uh, time that it's, it's about time that we actually started to go after the entire uh, Cascadia Innovation Corridor concept of creating these IT-centered control cities, destroying this urban area. I mean, the suburban area and the, and the rural area. And um, it's, it's an eco-dictatorship, basically. That's what, that's what this is all about. In this particular conference, the emphasis is on climate action, which means shutting down carbon emissions. Shutting down carbon emissions is, is an extremely destructive uh, attack on, the, on people's living standards, on, on the survival of people in general. And so this is all part of the bigger picture that's going on internationally where the, the region that we're in now called Cascadia, which is actually transnational, it's not a US region, it's a transnational region with British Columbia. This Cascadia region is the model for the rest of the world for the ideal control uh, area of the world which controls the world through information, through financialization and so forth. This is the ideal model of what the future is supposed to look like and it's a horrible future. Attendees arrived from all across the United States and Canada, predominantly in gas-powered vehicles, although some were electric. But as for Bill Gates, well, he arrived by helicopter. And as for the West Coast governors, well, they canceled coming in person and instead joined the conference via Zoom. Attendees said that they are hopeful that the region will be able to reach the net zero goal by 2050. I really want to want to explore the energy aspect of all of this, Mike, because you, you speak a lot on this and they're telling us now that we need to transition our energy. This is all part of the climate change agenda, which, by the way, is going to be weaponized far worse than COVID. Um, carbon dioxide is what grows plants and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is what produces food. The climate change agenda has been a mass famine agenda from day one. It was designed to demonize carbon dioxide which is the single most important molecule for food crops, rainforests, grasslands, and plants, and also ocean life, by the way, all across our planet. If you take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, you utterly obliterate the ecosystem. It would be mass death. That is, if it were zero carbon dioxide, mass death of all animals, 
all plants, all humans, because remember the plants produce the oxygen that is breathed by the, the animals and, and the people. So zero carbon dioxide means zero life on earth, by the way, except for maybe some anaerobic bacteria. So number one, it has been a death cult agenda from the very beginning. Uh, now, because they've kind of run out of time, they haven't been able to dim the sun quickly enough, understand the global dimming operations, which is the aerosol, uh, stratospheric aerosol injection, spraying pollution into the atmosphere to block the sun. What is that designed to shut down? Photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is the, you know, the, the botanical physiological process by which plants convert carbon dioxide, sunlight, and water into energy to produce food and everything else, leaves, stems, roots, you name it. So out of the three inputs for carbon, uh, I'm sorry, for photosynthesis, sunlight, um, water, and carbon dioxide, two out of those three are under assault by the globalists. They want to dim the sun, remove carbon dioxide. If you wanted to have a planet that could produce more food and support more human beings, you would want that planet to be warmer than the current planet. You would want ocean levels to be slightly higher, a few centimeters higher. And if the oceans were slightly warmer, it would cause more evaporation of water into the jet streams and cause more rainfall inland. And it would turn many desert areas into farmland. And uh, as you know, the geography of Australia in particular, this is of, of special interest. Imagine if you could take the mass deserts that dominate the continent of Australia and farm even 10% of that, you would have abundant, affordable food. And the same thing is true for Western United States and other areas. So all of these climate change lunatics who are saying carbon dioxide is bad, that a warmer planet is bad, that more water is bad. What are they demanding? They're demanding a cold, frozen, dead planet. So folks, this is an engineered global uh, kill vector to take out the global crops and food supply in order to take down humanity. And that's just one kill vector of many. Vaccines are another kill vector, social unrest, financial collapse, and so on. I mean, we could, we could talk hours, Maria, about this, but that's kind of, those are the highlights. For me, the issue of depopulation and population control is a deja vu experience I had hoped was behind me. But since it isn't going away, I'd like to share a small part of that experience with you right now as I take us back 33 years in time to the Regal Constellation Hotel in Toronto, Ontario on October 29, 1989. On that date, the Freedom Party of Ontario held a morning brunch event featuring guest speaker Dr. Walter Block, who at that time was the senior economist with the Vancouver-based Fraser Institute. Remember, in 1989, the Soviet Union still existed. The Internet as we know it today did not exist. To say nothing of iPhones and all of the technology that has emerged since that short period of time and recording devices were still pretty much restricted to videotape. That said, the entire two-hour-plus event is available on YouTube and is the source from which the following six minutes or so has been taken. And those six minutes concern the issue of what was then called zero-population growth, not depopulation, but it was no less an irrational objective, as we shall hear right now. So again, I don't think that it... It, there's anything in the environmental challenge that makes us reconsider our philosophy of freedom. Not only is our philosophy of freedom right and just, it is also pragmatic. 
Next to last, but not least, is zero population growth. People are saying, well, you know, there are too many people around here. Uh, in China, they forbid people from having more than one child, and, and it's really disgraceful what happens because people are biased toward having male children, and they find out they have a female child, and they abort. You wonder what's going to happen in 20 years in China when there are all these boys running around and no girls. It'll, you know, be a social prostitution, but it, I mean, it'll be a social disarray. Uh, there are some statistics that might convince you that we have no overpopulation problem. One of them is that if we took everybody on the earth, all six billion people of us, and put them into Ontario in the form of four people to a family, pardon me for using such a, a word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't mean to curse or you know to be obnoxious, but oh, okay, well, local mores, you have to. <laughs> Uh, if we put everybody on the earth, all six billion of us, into the uh, province of Ontario in the form of four people to a house, where the house is the usual middle-class-sized house with a front yard and a backyard and two stories, I think it's 8,200 square feet, everybody on earth would fit into Ontario. That's one instance to convince you how empty this planet is. Another one is if you just took all the people, and I think you count them as three cubic feet, if you stuck them all into a cube, the cube would be one mile, namely a mile up, a mile wide, a mile deep, you can get everybody in it. It'd be a little crowded, there'd be, you know, uh, there'd be some, uh, you know, I'm not advocating that we do this, but, you know, it'd make the New York subway system look, uh, you know, like empty, but, you know, we, we'd all be living cheek by jowl here, but, It'd just be for a few seconds. It would be sort of like, you know, the way uh, college kids get into a phone booth? Well, that would be something like that. Well, I mean, if it's just one square mile and this earth is a lot bigger, I forget how big it is, you know, there, there are very few people. Um, it's, it's also not true that poverty is correlated at all with overpopulation. You know, we speak of the teeming masses of India and all the Indians are poor, but what about the teeming masses of Toronto or the teeming masses of uh, Paris or London or Manhattan? I mean, they're teeming, or San Francisco, well, forget about San Francisco for a moment, <laughs> Los Angeles, they're teeming in there, but they're pretty rich. And then there are people that are dying like flies in a desert, like Ethiopia, where there are hardly any people per square mile. If you make a table where you put uh, rich or poor and, and population density, you can fill in all the boxes. That is, you get some poor uh, concentrated countries, some poor empty countries, some rich concentrated countries, some rich empty countries. Poverty has got nothing to do with it, uh, with overpopulation. What it's got to do with is the big G. <laughs> Too much G. That'll get you every time. I once debated somebody on this, and I used the following argument, and I got roundly booed and hissed, but I'm sure in this audience I won't. What I said is that my opponent has it within his power to reduce the population by one. <laughs> the fact that he's sitting over there waiting to get on this podium shows that he doesn't believe in his own theory. He's a hypocrite. And then I sat down. <laughs> And they booed me mercilessly. But, well, <laughs> and he got up and sort of, uh, you know, a little sickly grin because it's true. I mean, if he's so concerned about extra people, 
you know, let him take the one action that, that the libertarian philosophy allows him to deal with this problem. And, you know, uh, let's have one less person. But I don't, you know, even him, I don't think he should kill himself because I think people are precious and people are very valuable. And I take a very long-run perspective on this problem. Very, very long-run. My long-run perspective is that one day, not soon, but in a couple of billion years, the sun will go out. And on that time, we'd better have technology and enough spaceships or beaming up Scotty machines or whatever it is to get to the next universe. You would know about this as a Trekkie, that, you know, the importance of beaming machines or whatever it is. But beaming machines and technology of the sort that, we, that only science fiction writers can now imagine is something that will come about by a couple of geniuses, lots of geniuses, Einstein. And I know that the more billions of people we have, the more likely we will be to get a few Einsteins. So I'd like to see this world, instead of six billion people, you know, 60 trillion people, and I think we could all fit very happily if we didn't have any zoning laws that <laughs> I mean, you can't build more than 10-story buildings. I mean, you know, with technology like that in a couple of dozen years, or even now we can build 150-story buildings. You know, if we build 3,000-story buildings and own the oceans. We can get a lot more people in here without any uh, crowding or anything. And uh, I'm not saying tomorrow, but, you know, ultimately. So I don't see any overpopulation problem. I see each person is indescribably precious and important. And, and this overpopulation is just another incidence of this uh, death wish that I started the, the talk with. I mean, there are certain people that just, they don't want to have the decency to commit suicide on their own. They want to take the rest of us with them. And this permeates their philosophy, and the overpopulationism is just one more instance of it. Amazing how Dr. Block mentioned that ever-pervasive death cult that resides in the hearts of the left. Isn't that really remarkable? It is so unlike the love of life that resides in the hearts of those on the right. As we are about to hear as we head into our next bumper break, I don't know if it's even possible to find a more eloquent, articulate, and thoughtful artist of the spoken word than Scotland's Neil Oliver, who just this past September 3rd pretty much echoed the words of Walter Block so many years ago. It's time to stand up for humanity. Underlying so much of what is wrong in the West now is a pernicious, baleful belief that there are too many people in the world, that people are the problem. Generations have grown among us that have been taught, actually taught to believe that our species is some sort of plague upon the earth, a planet-wide cancer, if you will, that human beings only destroy, only do harm, only contribute one by one and billion by billion to the end of the world. There are uncounted millions of children out there right now who are growing up unhappy and terrified of the future, all because relentless anti-human propaganda dressed up as green politics and policies the activities of outfits like Extinction Rebellion and many others besides, have made them feel guilty just for being here and alive. There are so many adults who talk about how they don't feel it's right to bring a child into this world. Plenty more, if they allow themselves to have children at all, consciously limit how many they have, not because they don't want them, wouldn't love them, cannot afford to raise them, but because the guilt they have internalised persuades them a child is a sinful indulgence a wrong committed against the planet and against nature. Those are people who have been affected by more of the same propaganda that openly declares the world would be better off without us, better off without most of us at least. 
how many possible people, fellow travellers, individuals whose contributions to the world will never be known because they were never born, have we been denied on account of anti-human fear-mongering? This is a profound evil and it has to stop. All the time we are told there are so many of us now, approximately 8 billion and counting, that we are collectively an unsustainable drain on finite natural resources. This nihilism has been in the air since at least the work of the Reverend, note that he was a man of the cloth, Thomas Malthus, who published an essay on the principle of population in 1798. Malthusianism concluded that a species, yeast, rats, whatever, eventually multiplies until there are too many individuals for the available food supply, so that all must starve. In the 20th century, more harm was done by American biologist Paul Ehrlich and his best-selling book, The Population Bomb, that predicted in 1968 imminent worldwide famine caused by overpopulation. The scientific theory of Reverend Malthus was hopelessly flawed and Paul Ehrlich's famines never happened. But in spite of how wrong both scientists were in concluding people were the problem, the fear and the anti-human rhetoric has stayed with us. Now that same fear emboldens destructive nonsense like Net Zero and Agenda 2030 that will, by denying them access to plentiful cheap fuel, perpetuate the poverty of hundreds of millions of the world's poorest people while simultaneously dangling millions in the so-called developed West back over the same old yawning abyss that swallowed so many of our ancestors. All of this madness is excused and promoted as the remedy for a world being overheated by too many people using too much gas, oil and coal. Renewables, energy generation based on wind and sunlight, will never, never replace fossil fuels in a like-for-like handover. What's being forced on what was once the most developed continent in the world is fuel poverty and all its myriad consequences. A new book, Superabundance, The Age of Plenty, by Marion Tupi and Gail Pooley, invites us to consider that more people actually means more ideas and thereby the inspiration for more solutions to problems. For almost all of the two to three hundred thousand years our species has been here, Virtually every individual endured a life inconceivably tough, miserable and short compared to our own. The mass of people were poor in every sense, in ways that are impossible for us to imagine. It wasn't until around 1800 that the world's population reached 1 billion for the first time. Now there are 8 billion of us, and more of those than ever before, more than any Malthusian could ever have imagined, are living longer, better lives, freed from poverty. The possibilities actually made manifest by our numbers mean we are infinitely better equipped to solve our problems, carry more and more people into better futures. I watched a podcast this week in which Marianne Tupi talked about the potential of combining different elements. There are around 100 elements on the periodic table. It took our species the better part of 200,000 years to discover you could combine copper and tin to make bronze. That's just one combination of just two elements. Once you start thinking about combining groups of four elements and wondering what those combinations might offer, you realise the same 100 elements allow for 94 million different combinations. Now, says Tupi, if you think about all the possible combinations of 10 elements, mixing 10 elements at once, you have possibilities more numerous than the number of seconds that have elapsed since the Big Bang 14 billion years ago. We're smart compared to our Bronze Age ancestors, but the potential of our future made possible by all the ideas and innovation drawn from billions of people, unique individuals, becomes limitless. Thinking will run out of resources 
is like thinking we will run out of tunes because there are only eight notes. It's also useful to appreciate that in the almost empty world of our ancestors, good ideas often died like sparks in the darkness for want of others of like mind to help cradle them, coax them into fire. For most of our species' history, we were too few, and so the sparks flashed for moments and then went out forever. Only once there were billions of us together, sharing ideas, did we reach the point where we could make life better for the many rather than just the few. It's high time we recognise that the agenda being pushed upon us now is anti-human and predicated upon the belief that a world with far fewer people in it would be much better for the few that remain. By now you'll likely have heard the words useless eaters to describe the mass of the human population. It's not a fringe term. It's freely thrown around by public intellectuals like Yuval Noah Harari, closely allied to the World Economic Forum. Keep a close watch on any and all who would describe, let alone dismiss as useless eaters, billions of fellow human beings, each with his or her own unique hopes and dreams. Times in the not-too-distant past when the whole human species numbered perhaps just a few thousand individuals were challenged by plenty of things. We are infinitesimal specks of existence on a blue dot in the dark. We have enough to contend with in the years ahead. Who, after all, gets to decide which of us eaters are useless? I say it's time to remember and to have some respect for the species that has, inside three pounds of rosy pink meat, beneath a thin cap of bone, a human consciousness, still barely understood, that represents the most profoundly astonishing creation of the universe that we know about so far, in ways best expressed by philosophers, the universe only exists because we, we troubled and troublesome human animals, are here to comprehend it. But for us, Homo sapiens, the universe and everything that surrounds it might be mere meaningless quanta. That so many are denied the opportunity to reach their potential, to give what they have to give, is on account of years and years of deliberate schemes to keep us inadequately educated, thereby dependent upon malevolent institutions lied to and, worst of all, in a perpetual state of fear. What those malign elements fear above all are smart, educated, independent, happy people who do not need them. I say it's time to stand up for the people, all of the people, and I say the more people, the merrier. The Western nations of the world have been running on financial propaganda, lies, money printing, fake inflation numbers, which, by the way, even today, the even faked, the CPI popped at like 8.3%, which is causing everybody's heads to explode because that's year-over-year -year inflation that's off the charts. And even that number is a lie. It's really 20-plus percent right now. There's no scenario in which this is sustainable, not for Europe not for the United States, not for also debt-ridden Australia as well, and also Japan on top of that. So a lot of countries in Southeast Asia uh, also have massive debt problems. Civil unrest is coming there as well, not as bad as Europe. Europe will be the worst this coming winter, but even Japan is in for a world of hurt too, financially. It, it's gonna be amazing if the yen survives the next couple of years. Do you think they want to push people into civil unrest and, and physical war, or are we going to keep going with an information war? Frankly, if they can get a mass global civil uprising against the corrupt governments of the world, which is coming, I mean, it's, believe me, that, that's coming, 
especially again starting in Europe, then what they can achieve is the globalist savior scenario where the globalists come in with uh, SDRs and the World Bank, those are special drawing rights, and they come in and save the day, so to speak. But in order to participate in that, you're going to get a uni universal basic income, but you have to sign up for the digital wallet, the central bank digital currency, but it'll be a World Bank digital currency. So there'll be one currency controlled by the Luciferian globalists, and that's the only way you're going to be able to eat and you know just not die from starvation, unless you go completely off-grid, which a lot of people are doing, that's my plan. I'm not signing up for their Mark of the Beast system. No way. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I hear many people say, and truly believe, that money is the root of all evil. You know what they're doing? They're blaming an object for how it is used. And yet some of these same people who say this about money also recognize that guns don't kill people, People kill people. And so too it is with money. Money doesn't kill people. People kill people. Money may leave a great trail to follow, as in follow the money, but it doesn't determine the good or the evil of it. You can follow the money with regard to any transaction, which, by the way, is what the Great Reset is all about. Like, you know, your visit to the grocery store where we can follow the money from your account to that of the grocer. So what does that prove? Well, it proves anything that any dishonest person might want to make of it. Any wealth earned dishonestly is immoral. Any wealth earned honestly is moral and good. Fundamentally, money is the root of all good. It avoids the inconvenience of barter and uncertainty in a given market. It is what makes trade itself possible in a market free of coercion in which each side in a transaction receives value for value. And it is that very virtue that the globalists want to destroy by taking over the money supply and banking system. And the people who believe that money is the root of all evil are playing right along with that agenda. The secret of wealth creation is utterly lost on the left. And that's because all wealth creation comes out of voluntary transactions. And voluntary is not in the lexicon of anything on the left. Every economic premise of the left is based on some kind of fixed pie theory, which is in complete conflict with reality. This is ironic because all government programs of the left essentially boil down to some form of a Ponzi scheme welfare program. And they all depend on increasing future populations from which wealth can be transferred from the working young to the retiring old. You want to talk about unsustainable, it doesn't get any more unsustainable than that. What is always unsustainable, without exception, is every variant of collectivism that you can possibly imagine. And because all forms of collectivism and tyranny exist on the left, both in theory and in practice, to point this fact out to them is nothing short of right-wing extremism, don't you know? And if someone ever accuses you of that, well... Just say thank you for the compliment. On this side of our last bumper break, Press for Truth's Dan Dick speaks to that very issue back on September 15th, while on the return side of the bumper, Stephen Crowder shares his <laughs> libertarian experience with Alex Jones, something I have in common with the two of them, on the September 14th edition of Louder with Crowder.
This is Dan Dix here reporting for Press for Truth. The powers that ought not be are currently attempting to manufacture a civil war. And one of the key groups that they are targeting to try to convince society that this is a thing is so-called right-wing extremism. As we see here, international Canadian experts warn right-wing extremism is becoming increasingly mainstream with the COVID-1984 pandemic serving as an accelerant to that process, Canadian and international experts warned on Tuesday. Experts also emphasize that right-wing extremists organize, uh, organizing across borders through the internet efforts to combat such extremism must also be international in nature. One of the greatest battles that we are facing in terms of our work is the mainstreaming of extremism the proliferation of conspiracy theories, and the tremendous surge in misinformation and disinformation. Marilyn Mayo, a senior research fellow at the U.S.-based Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism, said in Ottawa on Tuesday at an international conference on right-wing extremism. For the 20th year, experts gathered from around Europe and North America to discuss far-right extremism and how to disrupt it. This year's conference, held for the first time in Canada, was hosted by the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, a nonprofit headquartered in Germany, the German Embassy in Ottawa, and the Canadian Anti Hate Network. A House of Commons committee report identified that ideologically motivated violent extremism is on the rise in Canada, particularly amid an increase in anti authority and anti government rhetoric during the pandemic. What within that umbrella, far-right extremism is the primary source of concern, several experts told the House Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security. So joining me on the line right now is my good friend Josh Sigurdsson of World Alternative Media. Josh, over the years, because of the work you have done, are no stranger to being labeled a right-wing extremist from the likes of the ADL and the SBLC. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but before we do, Maybe we could start this conversation off with the fact that nine times out of ten, these so-called extremist groups or even individuals turn out to be criminal elements within the government themselves. The FBI, the CIA, CSIS, RCMP, you name it. Time and time again, we find out those are the people behind so-called right-wing extremism. So in your experience and in your research, um, have you seen uh, similar things? And what are your thoughts on the idea of using right-wing extremism as a scapegoat uh, in order to bring about the idea of this civil war coming about. This is a really interesting topic because this is how they are shaping the future of humanity. I want to point out that these people call us extremists. These people call us extremists, despite the fact that they are the same people that over the last two and a half years supported destroying families, masking children, bringing in vaccine passports, shutting down bank accounts, banning protests, all while they praised people for burning down small businesses because they were peaceful, fiery, but mostly peaceful protests. This is Orwellian doublethink in a nutshell, Dan. The whole idea is that up is down, left is right, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, war is peace. That is always what they are trying to do. They're manipulating our minds, they're psychologically programming us, and those that are awake are left feeling like we're going insane because we are faced by every Twilight Zone apparatus you could possibly imagine. Look, what we just saw in the United States, for example, 
Um, Joe Biden did a speech in front of a satanic bloody background with military men with white gloves behind him as he did his first speech ever where he actually made sense. And unfortunately, that sense was insanity. And he basically said, anyone who doesn't support me is an extremist. And then when the press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, was asked to uh, elaborate on that, that insanely bad optic speech where he looks basically like a dictator in every photo. When she was asked to elaborate, she said, look, and this is literally what she said. And I quote, if the majority of people feel a certain way and you don't feel that way, yes, you are extreme. If it is an abundantly clear right now that they want a civil war, I don't know what else people will need. Uh, on 9-11, Kamala Harris claimed that people that supported Trump were the same as the 9-11 hijackers, which was interesting because, you know, 9-11 was an inside job. And so is this. Hillary Clinton uh, compared the so-called mega Republicans on the same day on 9-11 to al-Qaeda, which is interesting because she armed and funded al-Qaeda. So again, we are dealing with one of the most sophisticated, insane control collapses we've seen in history. And yes, they want civil war, Dan. And getting back to this article, they literally claim that anybody who speaks of, as you said, just basic government overreach is is spewing rhetoric the uh, the article said so any you know if you have a problem with the covid 1984 pandemic and you have anything to say about it that apparently is anti-government rhetoric and now puts you in the category of potentially being a right-wing extremist what do you think of this idea that you can't even speak out against the government today without being labeled some kind of extremist well i'd be shocked if anyone would think it would be it's shocking i mean the government the government itself always wants to gain more control. And if they can, they will. And they did with the COVID uh, pandemic. So, of course, they will continue with any new regulation, any new um, attempt on, on our freedom in the future. If you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. If they break your legs, they'll give you crutches. And then everyone goes, oh, hail government. Thank you, government, for uh, saving me from the problems you created in the first place. So when they say that you are an extremist for or, or you're uh, uh, possibly a terrorist, domestic terrorist, for daring to question the government. Of course, I want to point out, psychologically, this is very significant because most people don't actually think this. However, the way they spin this is the media will say it enough times until most people believe that most people believe it. If, if, we, if we look at the COVID lockdowns and we see the masking situation, when they pulled back the mask mandates, notice how most people didn't, didn't continue to wear masks. And that tells you how, much people, how many people were LARPing and how many people actually believed in these restrictions. This same goes for this. Most people don't buy that mo that we're all extremists for asking questions. Go to any bar, go to any restaurant, talk to the waiter, talk to the bartender, talk to someone at at the grocery store and just get into just easily get into some of these things, not anything too over the top, but just slightly ease into it. And you'll find most people have questions about what's going on. So that means most people are extreme. You were uh, sort of self-identified as a libertarian for a long time. And I always said, I'm kind of small L libertarian. I don't do that anymore. 
And the reason is because you still have libertarians saying, well, the First Amendment only protects you from the government, not from corporations. But when you look at the, and I'm not talking about a conspiracy, just when you look at the three point whatever billion that Amex has gotten, let alone when you look at these banks, let alone when you look at the, the, the Section 230 protections for, for big tech, um, this is no long, there's no longer a dividing line between corporations, a free market, which I support. These are effectively thug arms of the government, and libertarianism cannot stand up in the face of that. I 100% agree with you. In fact, I'm no longer even a little L libertarian. I'm anti-libertarian, and, and I'll explain why. 30 years ago, when I was first starting to get on air, 25 years ago, Republicans were pretty bad news, wanted to censor everybody, had a lot of problems. Right. The left hadn't turned into this pro-pedophile, Satan worship, cancer it is completely yet. So I didn't like them. You just hit the trifecta. Go on. So, so I thought, well, libertarians want to leave people alone socially, but they want a smaller government. They must be good. But it was big think tanks and big money funding libertarians. So conservatives would always think of corporations as perfect uh, and, and as government is bad instead of it being a balance. And so now the globalists admit they were building governments basically run by corporations or corporations so big they operate like governments, but way more efficient and way more authoritarian. And so absolutely uh, to see libertarians defend the censorship and, and, and defend the open borders and defend all this. Well, yeah, if Mexico was on par with us and we had a functioning civilization, then you can have an agreement over the borders up. You can't when it's totally collapsed. That'll collapse us. And so, yeah, the libertarians are now just used to siphon off Republican votes and keep Democrats in power. And I also learned over the years that most of your high-level libertarians are actually Democrats. And we now, they call them sleepers, sleeper cells. Democrats have been caught on tape by Project Veritas and others running as Republicans, also running as libertarians to siphon off votes. And so... Uh, it'd be nice to have another party, but then we'd just be in a parliamentary system where Justin Trudeau gets 30% of the vote, but he's still in power. Uh, so I think of all the systems out there, our republic form with two parties is the best. What needs to happen is when one party becomes satanic and psychotic and dictatorial, that party is disbanded by just a political realignment. It fades away, and then the, 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 the other party splits in two with the dividing forces or a new party is formed. Right. And, and, and that's really what happened in the first 50 years of the country. It needs to happen again. The Democratic Party is trying to outlaw the Republican Party because it's trying to outlaw populism. But uh, I remember I was surprised because I thought I was kind of a libertarian until I was at a dinner in D.C., as many of these dinners, uh, you know, they exist. And I found that... I want to say there was at least five, maybe six or seven people from Reason Magazine. And I was subscribed to Reason Magazine. And over half of them voted for Obama. And I said, well, hold on a second, what, what, what's going on here? I don't understand how, I understand if, I thought maybe they would stay home, you know, not vote at that point because of the lesser of two evils. But they actually voted for Obama because I said, even though with all of this that's happened, uh, you know, change. And that's where I said, okay, if at this point in time, you know, Greg Gutfeld, uh, Bill Maher, Glenn Beck, and these people at Reason Magazine all identify as libertarian, it doesn't really mean anything. And I think today, it's kind of something that needs to be shed because um, you can't say, hey, let's just all be fragmented when there's this leviathan coming from the left. Bingo. And the left is not the right, as the current political smear campaign would have us believe. To the extreme fascists on the left, you're an extremist if you question authority, before authority questions you. It's as simple as that. When so-called experts use floating abstractions and anti-concepts like far-right, extremism, right-wing, etc., I know one definite thing about them. 
they do not even have an inkling of what those words mean. There are no adjectives preceding the word right if you're talking about the political polarity. It's just right and only right, and the right polarity is the polarity of freedom, individualism, and capitalism. This is my continuous frustration with those on the right. They have allowed the left to falsely define the right in a political arena where the whole battle is define or be defined. And unless they proudly proclaim that they are on the right in every sense of the meaning of that word, they will lose this conflict. Because when so-called experts use the term extreme right, right wing, etc., they are working on the false belief that they want you to believe that the extreme right is fascism, which it is not. Fascism is explicitly left. Collectivism, communism, socialism, fascism, and yes, even libertarianism to an alarming degree are all on the left. And I have to totally agree with both Stephen Crowder and Alex Jones with regard to their experience with libertarianism. I went through the same thing, and while I've learned to reject libertarianism as a political philosophy, I have not rejected all people who call themselves libertarians, because often they're just economists who are talking about economic matters. Ayn Rand herself resoundly rejected libertarianism, even as many libertarians were claiming that their movement was based on her ideas. And now the political labeling battle has been escalated to, shall we say, the tipping point? By the way, that term is one of those secret code words that extremist, right-wing, violent terrorist, conservative Christian QAnon conspiracists use to spread secret messages. So keep that to yourself. <laughs> Never did I think I'd see an article and a headline like this in the mainstream media. This is far more significant than most would dare to imagine. Get this. This is the headline. Trump openly embraces QAnon conspiracies. And that's in the National Post on September 19th, this past Friday, written by David Klepper and Ali Swenson with the Associated Press. And I quote, after winking at QAnon for years, Donald Trump is overtly embracing the baseless conspiracy theory, even as the number of frightening real-world events linked to it grows. On Tuesday, using his truth social platform, the Republican former president reposted an image of himself wearing a Q lapel pin, overlaid with the words, The storm is coming. In QAnon lore, the storm refers to Trump's final victory, when supposedly he will regain power and his opponents will be tried and potentially executed on live television. <laughs> okay, sure. As Trump contemplates another run for the presidency and has become increasingly assertive in the Republican primary process during the midterm elections, his actions show that far from distancing himself from the political fringe, he is welcoming it. He's published dozens of recent Q-related posts, in contrast to 2020, when he claimed that while he didn't know much about QAnon, he couldn't disprove its conspiracy theory. Pressed on QAnon theories that Trump allegedly is saving the nation from a satanic cult of child sex traffickers, he claimed ignorance but asked, is that supposed to be a bad thing? <laughs> if I can help save the world from problems, I'm, I'm willing to do it, Trump said. Trump's recent postings have included images referring to himself as a martyr fighting criminals, psychopaths, and the so-called deep state. In one now-deleted post from late August, he reposted a Q-drop, 
One of the cryptic message board postings that QAnon supporters claim come from an anonymous government worker with top-secret clearance. A Trump spokesperson did not respond to a request for comment. Even when his posts haven't referred to the conspiracy theory directly, Trump has amplified users who do. An Associated Press analysis found that of nearly 75 accounts, Trump has reposted on his Truth Social profile in the past month, more than a third of them have promoted QAnon by sharing the movement's slogans, videos, or imagery. The former president may be seeking solidarity with his most loyal supporters at a time when he faces escalating investigations and potential challengers within his own party, according to Mia Bloom, a professor at Georgia State University who has studied QAnon and wrote a book about the group. (laughs) That's an interesting accomplishment, considering that there is no such group. Anyway... (laughs) These are people who have elevated Trump to messiah-like status, where only he can stop this cabal, Bloom said. That's why you see so many images in online QAnon spaces of Trump as Jesus. By using their own language to directly address QAnon supporters, Trump is telling them that they've been right all along and that he shares their secret mission, according to Janet McIntosh, an anthropologist at Brandeis University who has studied QAnon's use of language and symbols. It also allows Trump to endorse their beliefs and their hope for a violent uprising without expressly saying so, she said. End quote. Oh, wow. (laughs) That was hilarious. Pure projection from start to finish. Folks, I think we're reaching the tipping point. What makes this piece by the Associated Press so insightful and informative about its own writers and publishers is that there's no such group as QAnon, even though it's a popularly misused term, which we ourselves discovered in our first exposure to the phenomenon of Q back on February 11, 2021, on a broadcast of this show titled QAnon at the Tipping Point. Just as they are trying to smear freedom-loving citizens pejoratively using the right-wing label, there you go again, so too is the mainstream media trying to smear Trump by implying that his open endorsement of this imaginary group called QAnon is evidence of extremism and violent behavior. Think about the depth of the evil of this article's writers when they accuse Trump and anyone on the right of, quote, hoping for a violent uprising without expressly saying so, end quote. Think about what that statement says, but just on its own. So by their own admission, no one in the group that they're accusing has ever expressly said anything about committing violence. (laughs) But what about the other half of that truth? Everyone on the right has been expressly saying that they are opposed to any violent uprisings, and they have even demonstrated that truth, both in Ottawa last winter and in America's capital on January 6, which are two events that the left cannot rewrite the history about, no matter how hard they try. Too many of us have cell phones. (laughs) It's very clear who's hoping for a violent uprising, because the left is already in the middle of committing a violent uprising. It's been doing it for years. And what's also clear is that the very appearance of this article about QAnon in the so-called mainstream media is a sign that we are reaching a tipping point and that the left is losing. 
And who better to give the final word on that reality than one of the key voices associated with the so-called QAnon phenomenon, none other than the X-22 reports Dave Nazipsode, as heard this past Monday, only two days following the National Post report. Now, the deep state, the corrupt politicians, fake news, big tech, the puppet masters, they are now desperate and they are scared. Remember, Trump of the Patriots, the military, they're in complete and utter control. Going back to November 3rd, when they overthrew the United States government, that was the insurrection. That is when the military was engaged. That's when everything began. And since that time, I do believe Trump, the military, they had a plan moving forward and they allowed the resident to get into the White House. And this was done on purpose because Trump, if you notice, every time he truce out, he lets everyone know this is what happens when you cheat in an election. Everyone now is seeing this. And Trump, the patriots, they knew that the plan would be accelerated once the resident was in place. Because remember, when Trump was in the White House, he reversed everything that they were doing and showed the American people that the country could be energy independent. We could place tariffs on China. We could lock down the borders. We can have a great economy. We can do all of these things. And then he allowed the cheater to get into position to show everyone this is what it looks like when a foreign government and deep state players that are working together, this is what happens when they overthrow the United States government. And I do believe the people are seeing this very, very clearly. And if you notice, the Biden administration, they don't have control over the actual military. And the military, military intelligence, they are completely in control. And we can see that the DOD, the Biden administration, they're panicking right now because what has Trump been doing lately? He has been retruthing Anons, confirming that, yes, he knows what Q is. Actually, I think they created the entire movement. Of course he did. And now, as it continues on and as more information is being produced and as has he has more rallies and he plays where we go one, where we go all, people are starting to understand that Q is not just this crazy conspiracy right wing or conspiracy theorist type of thing. It is actually part of this operation. And now we can see the Biden administration, they're panicking over all of this because everything that they put into motion, everything that they're trying to do will completely fail. Remember, there is no Q anon. There is Q and then there are anons. The posts are just a, a bunch of posts that give us information leading us in the right direction. Wow, what a coincidence. That's exactly the direction we'll be heading when you join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be wanted so badly to be your American boyfriend. I even took the citizenship test, but it was more complicated than I thought. Oh, Dick. We Americans have a rich and storied history. It takes time and perseverance to learn it all. You would have aced that test? You would have known who elects the President of the United States? Of course I would have, darling. It's the people. No, it, it's the Electoral College. Wait, what? No, yes!
The Electoral College. You didn't know that. Oh, yes, I did. Then tell me who becomes president if the president and vice president both die. Secretary of State. Wrong! Speaker of the House! Swing and a miss, right too, Yankee! Why are you putting me on trial? Because I've been through hell trying to prove that I'm worthy to be here, while you, a great American, a descendant of boat people, you know just as little about America as I do. I know plenty. No, you don't. Neither do I. We don't know anything about this country. Isn't that wonderful? I love you, you beautiful American idiot! 